Well, I want to thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to be here again this morning. On Tuesday morning, I received a, a message from Ricky through my email asking me if I could preach this morning, and, and it was there that he, he let me know that uh, Norm had passed away. That was the first that I had heard. And he also let me know that there was going to be a, a memorial service afterwards, and I thought, what a great blessing it would be uh, to be able to come and share some words of encouragement with you all uh, before you celebrate Norm's life at his memorial service. And I just want to let you know that I think church is much like a football huddle where the team gathers together and around the quarterback and they're kind of in this little circle and they, they call out a play. But then they have to go out in the field and what? As soon as they, let's go do this, right? Then they have to go out and those of us who are sitting there watching the football game, we're sitting there in anticipation, aren't we? Can they execute the play that they just called? Now we know that the good teams can go out and do it. In fact, the great teams do it more often than not. The horrible teams, <laughs> well, we know that they don't always do it, do they? But I think church is kind of like that because what we find ourselves, at least right now, is kind of in this huddle where we're all gathered around, kind of in a small group here, in a way to prepare for the play out there in the world. And what I think is exciting is that there's a play coming just in the next couple hours, an opportunity for you to take what we discuss here and go out and apply it. See, sometimes we might have to, we, we learn something in church and, and the play doesn't happen until a week later or a month later or, or years later there's an opportunity to run that play of something that I heard earlier. But I want to share some thoughts, words of encouragement with you that I believe just later on today you're going to be able to execute and get out there and apply uh, I, I found myself drawn to the book of Ecclesiastes as I thought about how to prepare and, and what to, to say at, at today's service. And particularly Ecclesiastes 7, you can turn your Bibles there, Ecclesiastes 7, but I want to point out some words and some thoughts about the book of Ecclesiastes because I've just thought this book is fascinating. It kind of presents life from the perspective of somebody who doesn't know God or what would it be like to live a life without God, the opening chapter starts off in Ecclesiastes 1.1, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It doesn't sound too hopeful. It doesn't say, hey, all is great, everything's good, let's go out and live the perfect life. It kind of sounds like things are rather dark and, and gloomy. And I believe Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. He calls himself the preacher. Uh, but if Solomon really did write Ecclesiastes, as I believe that he did, you're talking about somebody who had all this wisdom and also all this power. He had power and wealth to accomplish just about anything that he wanted to. And he looks out at the world and sees vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But when I come to chapter 7, I find some interesting words of encouragement when you look at them a little deeper. And, and I believe that there is look at vision and see through vision. And oftentimes when I read scripture, I just can't look at the words, but I have to look at the deep meaning behind the words and see what is really being taught here, what's really being said. 
And in Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 4, it says, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. That seems kind of odd. The day of death better than the day of birth? But he goes on. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. And so there's this great contrast saying that the day of death is better than the day of birth. That seems really odd at face value if you think about it. Because other than the day that I accepted Christ and the day that I confirmed that with my baptism, the day that I met my wife and the day that I married her, I would say the next top days of my life were the days that my children were born. Those were incredible, joyful days. And when I think of some of the hardest days of my life, well, those would be the days that people died. When I lost my grandparents, when friends passed away, these would be times that would be the darkest times of my life, not the most joyful or, or the happiest or what I would say would be the best. So where is he coming from when he says it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting? I would certainly think that a birthday party would be much more enjoyable than a memorial service if we were given the choice. Better the day of death than birth? Really? The memorial service is better than the birthday party? Hmm. But then when he says frustration is better than laughter, a sad face is good for the heart. Maybe what he's getting at is that these memorial services, these times of death, really cause us to focus on what's most important. Because I can get lost in the parties. I can get lost in the good times. I can be very busy planning a birthday party for one of my kids. Here, My son's going to be 10 in, in the middle of June, and he's already telling me what he wants for his birthday and what he wants to do, and my wife is making the pinatas and starting with what to do with the themes for the cake and all these different things, right? So much busyness, so much busyness, and then that party's going to happen, and then what? But when you come to a situation like today, where you're entering into the house of mourning. There's a time of pause, of deep reflection. And whether you know Christ or not, there are going to be people entering into this room to celebrate Norm's life that are going to have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Some maybe for the first time. Others maybe for the thousandth time. Others who have received it. Others who have received it but maybe walked away from it. I don't know what their journey is but you have an incredible opportunity today to not only celebrate Norm's life and the blessing that he was to you, but also an opportunity to share what's most important with those who already know Christ and need a reminder or those that might be going astray and have no clue. But certainly times of memorial, times of death, perhaps Solomon says, are better than times of birth because they open up the eyes of our hearts 
to analyze and think about what's most important. And then we have to take a look at purpose as well, don't we? At these times of, of great loss, we often think of our own lives and our own destiny. For the, de the destiny of in, any man is death. We know this. That some point, when we don't know when that is, but every one of us is going to die. And that's a sobering thought, I realize. But it's definitely a thought that comes to pass when we enter the house of mourning and we attend the funeral service of somebody that we love who's passed away. It causes us to think about our own mortality and our own eternal destination in a way that we might not otherwise if we were just going to celebrate and have fun at a birthday party. So take advantage of this great opportunity that you have today to not only celebrate a man who is very dear to you, but also to reach out to his family, to reach out to friends. And I don't know what the heart of each individual who's going to be occupying these chairs later on today, I don't know what their heart is as far as openness or closeness to Christ, but I know what the power of the Holy Spirit can do when love reaches out. And so consider that great opportunity. I know that when we experience the death of a loved one, we think about how short life is. And even in conversations with my grandfather before he passed away, my grandfather passed away last year at the age of 96. 96 years. He's experienced a lot of life, and yet towards the end of his life, I had a conversation with him, and he was telling me how fast life goes. In a, in a blink of an eye, 96 years is gone. And I can agree with him because it doesn't seem like it's been 10 years ago since my son was born, and yet here we are getting ready to celebrate his 10 years. Some of you, your children are adults, and you're like, where did the time go? Where did the time go? Perhaps my grandfather is right, and perhaps James is right in James 4.14 when he says, you don't know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And what I'm here to share is that even if you live to be 96 or longer, you'll still look back and say, James is right. Life is a vapor. Here for a little while and then gone the next. And if death really is the destiny of us all, we might want to consider how much time do we really spend preparing for our eternal life after death compared to the amount of time that we spend preparing for our life here on earth. Because if I'm only going to be here, let's say I'm here until I'm 80 or 85 or even get to live as old as my grandfather, 96, that's still a considerably short amount of time compared to the eternity that I'm going to be spending with Christ. And if I'm going to be spending eternity with Christ, then why not focus more of my time here on earth on what's most important? And that is that eternity. I'm going to be spending a lot more time in eternity than I am here on earth. And I want to share with you that personally, death has hit me hard within the last several years. As a pastor who's lost church members, as a, as a grandson who's lost grandparents, and as a, a friend who's lost friends, death has hit me hard over the last few years. 
And so I want to share some, some words today of, of, of things that have impacted me personally that I can only hope and pray will encourage you in your time of grief. But I, I consider some, and I'll, I'll name a few, but there was an older woman at my church. Her name was Barbara. And every time I'd walk in to preach, she'd say, Pastor, give me a hug and a kiss. And she'd just wrap her arms around me, and I'd kiss her on the cheek, and she'd just be a big old smile. And she would request that I would come when she was in the hospital, and she spent many a days in the hospital, and I'd go and visit her on my way either into work early in the morning or on my way home from work as she was here in Glendora, and I'd go back and forth Pasadena to Rancho Cucamonga. It was easy for me to stop and see her. But I remember the last time that I saw her. And I, I visited her the day before she passed away. And then I received a phone call very early in the morning from her son saying that she had passed away. And I was grateful that I had taken the time to go and, and visit her. And, and sometimes we have opportunities like that, don't we? Where the Holy Spirit puts it on us to have opportunities to go out and, and, and be with the people. But other times it takes us by a surprise. I, I think of Barbara's son. It was New Year's Eve and I was heading down to the beach and I received a phone call from uh, another son of, of Barbara's and found out that her son Daryl had passed away from a brain aneurysm just that fast on New Year's Eve. And, of course, that takes you by a surprise because here's this man in his 50s, looks strong and he's doing yard work and he's living his life. The next thing you know, he has a headache, goes to the hospital and never leaves the hospital. Or I think of situations like with my grandparents where we knew it was going to just be a matter of time because they were already in their 80s and 90s and their health was fading and my grandparents both of them when they passed away were on a couch and they just pretty much exasperated they, they just I believe got so exhausted that they breathed their last and God took them home but but I think of these and everyone has their their own story in their own way of, of passing away, in their own opportunity that we have to reach out. And I realize what an opportunity that is, to be able to have our eyes open to whatever the Holy Spirit has for us to offer our condolence, or to be there in some cases when the person actually breathes their last, as I was with my grandmother. What a great opportunity that was to hold her hand and to know that I was praying with her when she heard, well done, my good and faithful servant, no doubt. But as the, as the time progressed, and I remember specifically, this is what I wanted to share with you, um, it is the title of my, my message today are the three C's of grief. And, and the first C that I want to take a look at is the C of condolence. Because as Christians, we are, and anybody, if they have a heart, is going to offer a condolence to somebody in grief. And I want to share with you some condolences that were extremely helpful to me and others that were not helpful at all. In fact, some of them caused more anxiety and frustration to me than they offered comfort. And I don't think that that was anybody's intention. I think when somebody offers a condolence, they are offering it sincerely and really desire it to be helpful in some way. But as I went through Facebook... <laughs> a few weeks after my grandmother passed away, and I saw all the things that were posted on there, I couldn't help but realize how lost people really are. 
Because when you offer a condolence, you're really offering the hope that you have. And if you don't know Christ, you really don't have much hope. If you do know Christ, you have all the hope right there. And when I say that I, I was realizing how lost people really were, it was troubling some of the things that I heard because I didn't know how to take some of these. And so what I want to do is, is just go through some of the condolences that, that, that I received and share them with you and, and see if this is your experience. And, and then when you have opportunity later on for people coming in and you offer your condolence, what will that be and what will that sound like? Let me give you some that just didn't sit right with me. One was when somebody said, I know how you feel. Well, what, what does that mean? Because I felt different with the various different people that I've lost because my relationship with them was different. My grandfather, for example, was my best man at my wedding. He was my best friend. He was there from day one. And he was my baseball coach all the way through. And he was, he was there for me, and I wanted to be there for him. So what do you mean you, you know what I, what, what, how I feel? Because do you really? And, and I don't know that I can say that I know how somebody feels when they lose somebody because the relationship that you have with that person is much different than any of the relationships that I've had with various people. For how can I, who've lost grandparents, which to be honest is kind of the natural way of doing things, how can I, who've lost grandparents, offer a condolence of I know how you feel to somebody who's lost a spouse or a parent? Honestly, I can't. Because losing a grandparent is radically different than losing a spouse. So what do you mean when you say, I know how you feel? So you might want to be careful with that one. Another one, although it's true, it, it didn't really sit well with me at first. For both of my grandparents, when they passed away, I received a condolence of, well, he or she is in a better place. Now, I believe that's true. Don't get me wrong. Uh, both of my grandparents were extremely strong Christians. In fact, I became a Christian largely because of their testimony to me. And there's no doubt that they're in a better place. But I want them here with me. See, I, I'm kind of selfish in my grief. I know they're in a better place. Intellectually, that's correct. That's right. That's good. But emotionally, when you're letting go, you don't want them in a better place. You don't want them in the worst place. But you want them here with you right here. You want to hug them. You want to talk to them. You want them right there by your side. And so, yes, they're in a better place, but that's not always comforting and helpful to somebody who's in the midst of the grief. Now, later on, as, as, as the time settled down a little bit, certainly it was much better to know that my grandparents were saved and much more comforting than, than to think that they rejected Christ, certainly. But in the moment, it doesn't really help when you really want them right there by your side. Another one, and this one kind of rubbed me the wrong way, maybe because of my theological background, but when somebody referred to my grandma as an angel now, that troubled me a little bit. Because I don't believe that human beings become angels when they die. We're, we're, we're humans now and we'll always be humans. We're created in the image of God that's radically different than the angels. 
And yet people that, that don't know their theology or maybe somebody that just wants to be comforting in the time will say, well, she's an angel now. And even while I was sharing this troubling condolence with people at her funeral service, there was still a lady in the back said, no, she is an angel right now. She's with the angels, I'll, I'll give you that. But she's not an angel. We don't change our being or our ontology when we die. We're humans for all eternity, but certainly we don't become angels. And to be honest with you, I don't want to become an angel. I, I think I understand what somebody is trying to say when, when, when they're saying that the person is an angel now, but I, I certainly don't believe that. Uh, what was interesting <laughs> at my grandma's uh, memorial service was that there was actually an angel in the crowd because uh, <laughs> there was a man that played for the California Angels by the name of Fred Lynn. Some of you might know, he was, played baseball in the 80s and was their center fielder. And my grandmother had a radical impact on his life and to the point that when we were kids, we used to call him Uncle Fred and would go to the ball games and watch him. But uh, I said, the only angel here is Uncle Fred. The reality is, unless we play for the angels, <laughs> we're going to stay human. Another one that I came across, and this was in, a, in, in, the, in the, the Facebook pages, was when people said, well, time will heal your wounds. And I wonder what they mean by that. Because I'm hurting now. I don't want to think about how I'm going to feel two, three, four, five, ten years down the road. And, and even that, I still miss my grandparents even though my grandfather passed away a year ago and my grandmother passed away two years ago. I'm still dealing with it. I don't know that time heals the wounds to the point that I'm going to get over it. That's another one. You'll get over it. Oh, really? I believe we'll get through it. And together with God's help and a healthy church people, we'll get through it together. I don't know that I want to get over it. I want to get through it. I want to be going through it with somebody who, who loves me and cares for me and is there to, to cry alongside with me. Certainly I understand that, that there is healing, but I don't know that we ever get over it. I think we just constantly go through it. And through the process, there are good days and there are bad days, there are better days and there are worse days. And certainly, although there, there are days that are better, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be completely over it and I don't want to be over it because to me to be over it means that I'm somehow over the person and when somebody makes such a deep impact on your life you don't want to get over them I don't want to get over my grandparents I want to get through the reality that I've temporarily lost them in the sense that they're no longer here on this earth but I look forward to being in eternity with them and we're just going to get through until that day Another one is when somebody comes, and I understand where they're coming from here, when they say, I'm sorry for your loss. And in one sense, they're, they're sorry, but what do they mean by loss? Because while the person is no longer here temporarily, I haven't lost them. It's not like I don't know where they are. When you lose something, you don't know where it is. Now, I lost my keys. I didn't know where they were. It took a while for me to find them. But you don't lose people who are saved because you know where they are. You didn't lose them. I know where they are. I just know that I can't go there right now. And I can't see them. And that's why I'm hurting. That's why I'm struggling. But I didn't lose anybody because I know where they are. 
And it wouldn't make any sense to me to say I lost my grandparents in the sense that I lost my brother. My brother is an actor in New York. I don't get to see him very often. He is coming back to California in August to get married, and I get to be part of his service. But during that time that he's in New York, I didn't lose my brother. He's in New York. I know where he is. Now, there is a difference. I can call my brother. I can send him a a message, and we can communicate, and I'll, I'll be seeing him sometime in August. But in a similar way, I know where my grandparents are. And just as I'm going to see my brother in August as his wedding, am I not going to see my grandparents again some glad morning when this life is over and I fly away? Of course I will. See, the separation that death brings is, is just temporary. But then there's a last one, and this last one really puts people to the test. So when somebody says, let me know if you need anything, think about that for a minute. Because when, when I tell somebody, let me know if you need anything, that means that I've just opened myself up to anything. And anything, that's a lot of things, isn't it? <laughs> if you think about it. So when somebody says, let me know if you need anything, there's two problems that I have with this. Number one, it's extremely vague to say, let me know if you need anything. And the person who says, let me know if you need anything, could actually be meaning, I don't really want to be bothered with this. And they just kind of go their separate ways, not really being expected to be asked of anything. On the other side, if you say, let me know if you need anything, you're opening yourself up to everything. And are you really ready for anything that that person needs? Now, you might want to filter this a little bit more and say, let me know if I can make you a dinner this week. Let me know if we, if we can do a specific act. And I remember a time when I was going through a, a struggle and, it, and my church signed up, the members of my church signed up for a whole month, the whole month of October. I think it was Pastor Appreciation Week or month that they were celebrating. For a whole month, they brought me dinners. And some of them were from the lady down the street and she made this beautiful homemade soup and it was delicious. Another one was from a friend of mine who went to my church from Victorville kind of far, right? How does a guy from Victorville bring you dinner? Well, he planned on it, but he realized that he wasn't going to make it. So Domino's knocks on my door and delivers me a pizza. And I thanked him for it. That was cool. Thank you. I I like pizza. No problem. He said, well, I planned on, I know what you planned on, but I'm grateful that you delivered. (laughs) And, And the reality is when we say anything, what do we mean? We're opening ourselves up for everything, which that might be okay with you, but just be careful. I remember one time when I was a student at Biola, this would have been years ago, and I went on a first date with a, with a girl and I dropped her off at her house and she had lived in this apartment with uh, three or four other ladies. And, and, uh, and I remember this well because she looked at me and she says, you're welcome to come over any time. And I said, okay, cool. So we're like that already on the first date. I can just come knock on your door anytime and you're cool. She said, yes, come on. I like you. You're cool. Let's do this. You come over anytime. All right. So a week later, I'm driving by her apartment and I go knock on her door. It's a little bit late at night, but I thought I'd surprise her. She said I could come over anytime. And she wasn't there, but two of her friends were. And then they get back to her and say, well, Patrick came by and was looking for you. And apparently, she didn't feel comfortable with that. And I found out from a friend of hers 
that she didn't feel comfortable with me knocking on her door at 9 o'clock at night just to say hi. I didn't understand because she told me, come over anytime. So what do we mean when we say come over anytime? Are we going to feel uncomfortable when somebody comes knocking on our door just to say hello at 9 o'clock at night? Uh, when we say, I, I want to know if you need anything, is that really true? Call me anytime. Okay, what happens at 3 o'clock in the morning when I need someone? So, so these are things that we need to consider when we offer condolences. I, I say yes, offer condolences. That's good. But let's make sure, number one, we can back them up. And number two, that we really mean what we say. Now, I say that I, I'm going to bring three C's of grief. The first one was the condolence. The second one is the crutch. Because I've heard a lot of atheists say that Christianity or religion in general is a crutch during your time of need. And I take this as a Christian as a great offense because I'm not so sure that uh, Christianity is a crutch. Although it has helped me in my time of need, I don't know that I'd agree that it's a crutch, that I believe in Christ just to help me get through the difficult times. Let me say that when you lose somebody that you love, there is no crutch strong enough that can really hold you up. If Christianity is just a crutch and that's all it offers, then it fails to offer really any hope at all. But listen to some of these, uh, these atheists and some of the things that they have to say about religious belief in general and Christianity specifically. In 1999, Jesse, you know, the body Ventura, he said this, Organized religion is a sham and a crutch for the weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. It tells people to go out and stick their noses into other people's business. But he says, I live by the golden rule, treat others as you would want them to treat you. The religious right wants you to tell people how to live. Now when he says that this part, that religion is a crutch for the weak-minded people. Now Jesse the Body Ventura is a pretty strong dude, right? He could probably cr crush a lot of people, and he certainly doesn't feel like he's going to ever need a crutch to get around. But what do we mean when we say that Christianity is a crutch? I want to read a few others, and then I'm going to make a, some, some comments on this. But Peter Atkins, who's an atheist science professor at the University of Oxford, says that religious belief is outmoded and ridiculous. Belief in God was or is worn out. It was once useful as a crutch, in mankind's journey towards truth, we consider the time has come for that crutch to be abandoned. Or Richard Dawkins, who's a well-known atheist today and the author of a book called The God Delusion, says this, Many of us saw religion as harmless nonsense. Beliefs might lack all supporting evidence, but we thought if people needed a crutch for consolation, where's the harm in that? But September 11th changed all that. Now, I get what he's saying because on September 11th, uh, people were no longer using religion as a crutch. They were using it as an avenue to crash planes into buildings and to kill innocent people. Uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare says that religion is a crutch and only the crippled need crutches. So here's how I would respond. Number one, I, I don't believe that Christianity is just a crutch. For if it were, it would be a crutch that I would lean on and it would break. And then I'd have nothing. 
If Christianity is just for getting me through difficult times and that's all it is is a crutch, there's no crutch heavy enough to hold me up with the depths of pain and despair that I've been through in my life. Only if, you see, that crutch is made out of the cross of Christ is it strong enough to hold me up in my time of need. But if the crutch is made out of the cross of Christ, then it's not just a crutch to get me through my time of need. It's a crutch to get me through all times. Because I realize that I'm not strong. I realize that I am weak. In fact, I realize what Paul and many others were saying is that in my weakness, I am made strong because strength comes out of weakness. And it's the weak who need the cross. And I realize that I need the cross because the cross is the foundation for my hope. And that leads me to my last C for today. And that is the cross. You see, we offer condolences, and if they're real, they're good. If they're just words that come out of the mouth or something we post real quickly on Facebook because we see that somebody had posted that their loved one passed away, it can become meaningless and it can be of no real hope or value. The crutch, well, it depends what it's made of, doesn't it? Because there's some crutches that if I lean up against, I'm going to get more hurt than helped. But if the, cr the crutch is made out of the cross of Christ, then indeed it is heavy enough to hold my weight and my burdens. But the cross of Christ offers hope, doesn't it? It offers hope for our salvation and the hope of the salvation of those who have passed on before us. The cross of Christ reminds me of Christ's suffering because he suffered on that cross. He bled on that cross. He certainly cried out in agony and died on that cross. The cross, though, reminds me that that the crutch of Christianity, if it is such, is not just a subjective crutch to get me through a particular difficult time, but it's an objective foundation for my faith. Because we're left with either ors in Christianity, aren't we? We're not left with, I'm a Christian because it helps me. I'm a Christian because it gets me through. I'm a Christian because it feels good. Because there are some days it doesn't feel good to be a Christian. There are some days it's not easier to be a Christian. There are some days, let me just say, if you look at the lives of the apostles, you'll see that they would have lived a lot longer had they rejected Christ. It was not easy being a Christian in the first century. And likewise, it's not always easy being a Christian today. So the cross of Christ reminds me that these statements of Christ and the hope that we have gives us a foundation that is objective. And by that, I mean outside of our own likes and dislikes. That it's objectively true. I find it very ironic. I had a friend of mine that would always uh, ask questions in a way that would try to get me in, in, a, in a pigeonhole kind of situation. Uh, he wanted to, to prove that, that Christianity was false and he did everything that he possibly could to, to put me in a bind, to, to get that aha moment. Well, I think people tried to set up Jesus that way, didn't they? But this guy would do this with me until one day is father passed away and in conversation he made the statement that he believes that his father's in heaven and my response to him is well how do you know that 
Is that something you just think or feel or hope for? Uh, How do you know your Father's in heaven? Because I think there is a direct parallel between the objectivity and the fact of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, to the hope that we have in Christ and in eternal life. And I don't think that we can say that we know that our loved one is saved unless we can say that we know that Christ was crucified, was buried, and resurrected from the dead. And I look at it kind of like a (laughs) teeter-totter. To the degree that you know that Christ rose from the dead, that's the degree of hope that you can have that your loved ones who died in Christ are saved. Otherwise, I think things are left a little bit out of balance. For how can you say that I know this person is in heaven and reject Christ? I don't see how that works. But for me, it's a great balance. Because the more that I put hope in Christ, the more hope that I have that his promises are yes and amen. And the more hope that I have that not only are those loved ones that are no longer here who have died in Christ are with him, but the hope that I have that we'll see each other for all eternity. And that's my hope. And that's what I have to offer today as well. But as a cross, what I want to point out from 1 Corinthians 15, let's turn there. I want to take a look at the way that Paul presents hope and what he has to say about the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, now let me just say before we start, this is my favorite chapter in the Bible. You'll see why as, as, we, as we break this up today, but uh, this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible for, for reasons I will explain. And people often ask, as a, as a Bible teacher at Maranatha, students will ask, what's your favorite story or what's your favorite chapter? And I turn them to 1 Corinthians 15 in hopes that here, they'll find the objectivity of the gospel message. For Paul writes, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel, the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." I'm going to pause there for a moment because he's not presenting this as just something that's subjective to him. Notice how he's presenting to us. Number one, this is the most important thing I have to say. I write to you as of first importance that Christ was crucified, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. And I wonder if, if you have the most important thing that you have to say to somebody, what would it be? Well, when Paul writes the most important thing I have to say is that Christ died, he was buried, and that he rose again. And then he presents it in a way that if you don't believe me, if you really don't think this happened, well, there are various people that you can go ask. Go ask Peter, see what he has to say. Go ask James, see what he has to say. 
Now, for me, I'm a little abnormally born here, he makes the point, and I, I think that has something to do with even the way he came to Christ. Because Paul comes to Christ through the appearance at the road to Damascus, where the, many of these others who came to Christ, at least the apostles, were eyewitnesses to the ministry of, of Jesus and experienced his earthly ministry and were Christians when he died. And yet, for some of these, Paul and James... These guys were not Christians when, when Jesus died on the cross. These guys were Christians and became Christians after, which raises something interesting to me for those who challenge the uh, historicity of the resurrection or the authenticity of who Jesus is. Uh, for I haven't heard anybody explain to me an alternative to how James or Paul become Christians other than they were not Christians after Jesus dies, and they become Christians very soon after his death. So, so at, at what point, how do they become Christians? If, if, if Jesus does not appear to Paul at the road to Damascus as the book of Acts does, then what's the alternative? How, how else does he become a Christian? Or James. If James is a half-brother of Jesus, and the Bible tells us that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him during his earthly ministry, then how does James become a Christian? And later on become one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. So these are questions that I have because I think the best explanation for Paul and James becoming Christians is that Jesus appeared to them. And that's why he brings these out. He brings Peter out, I believe, because everybody knew that Peter denied Jesus, right? And yet, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection... Jesus restores Peter, and Peter's on fire for Christ. For a guy who's going to deny him three times to say, okay, crucify me upside down, how does that transition take place? Unless you're experiencing the resurrected Christ. And so I, I take the position that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical event, and that it is facts. And, and that there are good reasons to consider that it, it took place. And I'm going to unfold those at another time at another message. Um, and hopefully I'll come back sometime in June and, and we can unpack that. Uh, some good reasons to think that the resurrection is a historical fact. It, and, and even take another step further in, into, uh, in, into bringing even more credibility to the Christian faith and even more hope for those of us who, well, some people might be on the bubble. And if you ever find yourself on the bubble, that is someone who could go either way. I don't know. Is this real? Is this not if you've ever investigated the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, for me, I get to the point where I've investigated it so thoroughly that there's no doubt in my mind that it occurred, that it was a historical event. And so that gives me even more hope, doesn't it? And makes my faith even stronger that Norm is in the presence of Christ, that my grandparents or in the presence of Christ, that someday I will be in the presence of Christ. In fact, for all of us who were believers, that's the ultimate hope, isn't it? That we'll all be there together. We're just helping ourselves get through this process of earth now and honoring God with everything that we have. But I want to continue a few more things, and then we'll wrap up. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even be deserved to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, 
but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I love that line of reasoning. As a debate coach at Maranatha, as somebody who thinks through logically an order of reasoning, I love the way that he presents this. Because for me, it is an either-or situation. Either Christ is risen from the dead, and this is the greatest event of all history, and this is the foundation for all of our hope, because we're going to gather together later on today and celebrate the life of Norm, but it's not just his life that we celebrate. It's not just the years that he was here. We celebrate his life and who he was in Christ and recognize that he's in eternity with Christ. That's our hope. But the way that Paul presents this is if the dead are not raised, well, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then you have no hope. And if you have no hope, he takes it another step further and says, but wait a minute, uh, you're foolish for not only telling people about this hope that's not real, but you're walking around only giving yourself some kind of a subjective emotional hope that only lasts for a temporary time. And I think that would be extremely foolish, especially when you consider how much people have sacrificed in this life to serve Christ. But what the opposite is also true, and this is the beautiful part of it, if Christ has been raised, you see, that gives us the foundation for all of our hope, not only for this time in this earth, in the times that I'm in need, in the condolence that I need, in the time that I've lost my loved ones, but also the hope for all eternity. And that's the good news. So this is the challenge for everybody. Because every individual has to come to terms with does the resurrection occur? Did Jesus resurrect from the dead? And if he did, let me say that changes everything because that gives me an objective hope. Not only gets me through the difficult times, but it will ultimately get me to my ultimate destination. If Jesus resurrected from the dead, that changes everything because that changes every decision that I make here on this earth. It's not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not the, the philosophy of the person who recognizes that there's eternal life. There's eternal life. It changes everything. It changes the way that we grieve. It changes the way that we live. And I'm not saying that just because I believe in eternal life and I believe that the resurrection is a historical event that I'm not going to grieve, Believe me, I grieve with the best of them. 
believe we, we looked a couple of sermons ago when I was here for my first time, we looked at a, a passage where it said Jesus wept. And I'm just grateful that I serve a God who weeps along with us, who cries alongside of us, who takes his pierced hands and wraps them around us when we're struggling. We don't serve a God that's just so far beyond us that we can't relate to him and he can't relate to us. But we serve a God who loves us so greatly that he took on human flesh, dwelt among us, suffered for us, and died in our place. And so today I just want to encourage you. I'm not going to go all the way through the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, but I would hope and pray that you do sometime this week. Open up the chapter and dissect it and read it as, as much as you want, as often as you want, as in great detail as you want. But I came here today to encourage you with words of hope. Because in a few hours, you're going to have an incredible opportunity to celebrate somebody's life who you loved and to recognize that it doesn't end with death. It just continues. But what great opportunity to offer real condolence that's grounded in the very nature and work and person and acts of Jesus Christ. A historical event in the resurrection that offers us real hope. You're going to be dealing with some people that are going to be hurting, no doubt. And maybe you are, are one of them. And you look at this as an opportunity to lean on one another. I think the body of Christ is a crutch. <laughs> Not in the sense of a negative crutch like the atheists use, but the only thing that helped me get through my difficult times was having loved ones gather around me and I leaned on them and they lean on me and they hold me up when I'm down and I hold them up when they're down and we link arms and form this body together, this body of Christ together to help us get through the difficult times. Again, we don't want to get over it. We want to get through it. And we only can do that when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for this opportunity to bring your word today. And Lord, we see that Ecclesiastes, and the whole book itself, but chapter 7 particularly, gives us some words to ponder. How is it greater for us to enter into a house of mourning than a house of celebration and party and fiesta. Well, it's only possible, Lord, because we know that the house of mourning opens our eyes to what's most important. That is, at some point, based on our mortality, we are going to die. And it would do well for us to realize our mortality. It will change the way that we view life here on earth and how precious it is in the relationships that we have with one another. Help us, Lord, to be thoughtful and meaningful and purposeful in our condolences, to not just spread out words that are meaningless or find a list of them that are already on the computer for us to cut and paste and give to somebody, but help us, Lord, to really pray about the words that we might say to somebody to encourage them in their deepest moments of grief. And help us, Lord, to be people that will back up the condolence. That if we say that we'll do anything, 
that that really means anytime, anywhere, when we hear a knock on the door, we need to be willing to open it and willing to accept when it might be inconvenient for us. Help us, Lord, to understand that Christianity is not a crutch. It's not just something we lean on in our time of need. But, Lord, in those times of need, when we are leaning, we recognize that we're not leaning on a crutch that's going to break, but we're leaning on the cross of Christ. And, Lord, I'm thankful that that cross is vertical, that it is an extension of your love from heaven down to us here on earth. But I thank you, Lord, that it's also horizontal. And what an incredible opportunity we have to reach out to one another with the horizontal love of God and embrace our fellow man. Lord, I pray for the memorial service later today. For those that do know Christ, we know that this is going to be a great time of celebration. But certainly also a time of mourning as there are going to be those who are struggling with the reality that Norm is not on this earth anymore. Lord, for those that might be on the bubble, they don't know which way to go with this Christian thing. Or for those who reject and reject over and over and over again, may this memorial be, service be an opportunity, a sobering reality for them, for the power of your Holy Spirit to speak to their hearts, to open up the eyes of their hearts and to soften them and open them up to accept and receive you. Lord, I thank you for Joy Christian Center. For I remember the first day that I was here as a visitor, just observing to see if this would be a place that I would want to come and preach to. That very first day, we gathered around Norm, and it was the time that he was getting ready to go to the doctor again. And we gathered around Norm and, and Connie and laid hands on them and prayed. And I will never forget the love that this congregation has for one another as we reach out our hands to broken and hurting people with the reality that in some point and sometime we are all broken and hurting. In your name I pray. Amen.